Please be seated and let's pray once again. Father, we thank you for the great privilege we have of gathering with the body of Christ to hear from you this morning. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes. Help us see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Help us to rejoice in the freedom we have in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Louis Zamperini's plane was shot down over the Pacific during World War II. Then he spent seven weeks adrift in the ocean trying to survive. Eventually, a Japanese, war, Japanese warship picked him up and threw him in a Japanese prisoner of war camp for the next two years. And life in that camp for Louis was a living hell. There was a guard named The Bird who really despised Louis. And this particular guard made Louis do all kinds of horrible things. He made him do uh, push-ups in piles of human excrement. Then he would shove his face in the excrement. He made Louis work to the point of death. He deprived him of food and water. He would take a huge belt buckle and whip Louis with the belt buckle. One night at 1 o'clock in the morning, he woke up 200 prisoners, got them all out of bed, lined them up, and told each one of them, you have to punch Louis in the face as hard as possible. And anyone who didn't was beaten by the bird. Louis despised being enslaved to this camp. In particular, he despised being enslaved to the bird. The bird was a horrible slave master who never relented. Louis could never escape. No matter what he tried, the bird was always there to make his life miserable. He was totally enslaved. All of us before conversion were totally enslaved, not to the bird, we were enslaved to the power of sin. Before conversion, we had no choice but to say yes to sin. And that slavery is actually worse than slavery to the bird or being a slave in a prisoner of war camp because slavery to sin leads to eternal death. Now, many of you are Christians this morning, but you still feel like at times you too are enslaved to sin, which raises the question, is there hope for us? Is there hope that you and I can be freed from the tyranny of slavery to sin? And that brings us to John 8, 31 to 36. This passage is incredibly encouraging because it describes Jesus, the greatest liberator to ever walk the face of the earth. Jesus has the power to liberate us or to free us from the power of sin. Now, to help us understand this passage, we're going to look at it under three headings this morning. Receiving freedom rejecting freedom, and then rejoicing in freedom. So first is receiving freedom. How does one receive freedom? A few steps. Step one, we believe in Christ's claims. Look with me at verse 31. <clears throat> so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In the previous verses, last week's sermon, Jesus makes a bold claim. He claims to be the light of the world. And apparently, some of these Jews believe that claim, which is good news. 
First and foremost, if we are going to experience the freedom that Christ offers, all we have to do in one sense is believe in Christ's claims. That's it. We are freed, redeemed, justified, adopted, and forgiven through faith alone, period, end of story. That's the good news of Christianity. We experience freedom when we simply believe Christ's claims. And apparently, some of these Jews have done that, but Jesus is a little skeptical that their belief is actually genuine, which brings us to the second step. Step one is we must believe Christ's claims. Step two, we must abide in Christ's word to experience freedom. Look with me again at verse 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, read that again, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not only must you and I believe Christ claims we must also, according to Jesus, abide in his word. Jesus says, if, 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 if you abide in my word, you are truly, my disciples said negatively, if you don't abide in my word, you are false disciples and you will remain enslaved to sin forever. This raises the obvious question, what does it mean? to abide in Christ's word. What does that mean? The word abide in the original language means to remain, continue, to practice, to stand firm, or to hold fast to something. To abide in Christ's word simply means to live in it, to immerse ourselves in it, and to obey it, and to rejoice in it, even when we don't like what it says. Someone who continues to abide in Christ's word is building their life on the words of Christ found in the pages of sacred scripture. Now, please hear me. We are freed through faith alone. But if that faith is genuine, you and I will abide in Christ's word until our dying day. Abiding in Christ's word is the necessary evidence that one's faith is real. <clears throat> so how do we experience or receive freedom? Two steps. We believe in Christ's claims and we abide in Christ's words. Now sadly, many of us know people who start out believing in Christ's claims, but they refuse to continue to abide in Christ's words, and they eventually fall away. Several years ago, I was shocked, sobered, surprised when I heard about Joshua Harris walking away from the Christian faith. As many of you know, Joshua Harris was a prominent Christian author and the pastor of the flagship church of our old denomination. He was a megachurch pastor who wrote several excellent books. I didn't like all of his books, but some of his books were very, very insightful, very good, very edifying, and very helpful. Joshua shocked our denomination several years ago when he stepped down from his post as lead pastor of the largest church in our denomination, our old denomination that we're not a part of anymore. And then Joshua moved across the country 
And over a five-year period, his faith was deconstructed, and now he no longer claims to be a Christian. What happened? I don't know exactly what happened, but clearly at some point, Josh stopped abiding in Christ's words. He initially appeared to believe Christ's claims, but he, he refused or he did not abide in Christ's words. He pulled himself away from Christian community, and he eventually pulled himself away from God's words. And now he no longer claims to be a Christian. Well, Dave, what about once saved, always saved? I passionately believe that doctrine. It's biblical. But if you're truly saved, you'll persevere. A lot of us know people who have walked away from the faith. We know people who started out apparently believing Christ's claims, but refused to continue to abide in Christ's word. In a church this size, there are probably people here who started out believing Christ's claims, but currently you are not abiding in Christ's words. And drift is always so subtle. Think about a raft adrift at sea. After five minutes, the raft drifts maybe 10 feet, 12 feet, 20 feet. 30 minutes, it's drifted 40 feet. 24 hours, it's drifted half a mile. Slow, gradual drift. That's what happens to many people who refuse to abide in Christ's word. They slowly drift away over time, and eventually, they no longer believe Christ's claims. But for you and I to experience the freedom that Christ is talking about, we must initially believe in Christ's claims, and we must continue to abide in Christ's words if we're going to experience the freedom that Christ is referring to here. And again, we are not saved by abiding. We are saved through faith alone. But if that faith is real, it will abide in Christ's word until the end of our days. How do we receive freedom? We believe in Christ's claim and we abide in Christ's word. But here is the tragedy. Not everyone wants the freedom that Christ offers which brings us to the second point. First, receiving freedom. Second is rejecting freedom. Why do the crowds reject Christ's offer of freedom? Because they don't think they're slaves. Look at verse 33 with me. They, that is the crowds, the Jews, answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free. These leaders are offended by Christ's discussion about freedom and slavery because they're arguing with Jesus that they've never ever been slaves to anyone. They don't need the freedom that Jesus offers. Thank you very much. Which is incredibly ironic because the history of Israel going back to 722 BC is one long history of slavery. Israel's been enslaved to Assyria, uh, Babylon, Egypt, Greece, Syria, and now in the context of this story, uh, Israel dwells under the context of the iron boot of Rome. They've been slaves 
for over 700 years, essentially. But what Christ is really talking about here isn't political freedom. He's talking about freedom from the slavery of sin. And these Jews are totally enslaved to the sin of pride, making them blind to their own need. Here's the point. The crowds misunderstand Jesus because they're blind to their very own slavery, which is so common. Ryan Leaf was a larger-than-life college football star in the 1990s, 96 to 97 to be precise. When I was a Coug back in the day, I remember watching him throw for 500 yards a game on average. Uh, many folks thought that he was going to be in the Hall of Fame someday. He broke too many records to list. In 1997, he was the number two overall draft pick behind, anyone know? Peyton Manning. That was a much wiser choice than Ryan Leaf. Ryan Leaf had so much potential. Unfortunately, Leaf turned out to be the biggest bust in NFL history. Even a bigger bust than Brian Bosworth. His career was basically over after his third game, but then he bounced around from team to team for roughly four years. Right after he retired at the age of 28, he was offered some painkillers at a big fight in Las Vegas. And that unfortunately began a long, slow demise into opioid addiction. And he says that he took the drugs because he was so discouraged about being known as the biggest bust in the history of the NFL. But no matter how hard he tried, he could not stop taking pain medication. Eventually, his $28 million was gone. Then he began to steal pain medication from the kids he was coaching. Then he broke into his friends' homes and stole their pain medication. He could not stop stealing and medicating, stealing and medicating, which began this vicious cycle of drugs, stealing, prison, rehab, repeat. Drugs, stealing, prison, rehab. He was totally enslaved to opioids. He wanted to quit, but he couldn't quit. He was being mastered by drugs. No matter how hard he tried, he could not escape this suffocating slavery. By the age of 35, he wanted to call it quits, and he tried to kill himself several times. Fortunately, he was unsuccessful. Sadly, Leaf is not alone. Many people can relate to this experience of wanting to quit, wanting to stop sinning. But no matter how hard you try, you can't. You feel totally enslaved. And one thinks here of the person enslaved to anxiety that cripples them, or someone who's enslaved to anger, or someone who's enslaved to pornography, or someone who's enslaved to spending money. They can't stop spending. Or someone who's enslaved to hoarding. They just keep collecting more and more and more stuff. By the way, America has a multi-billion dollar storage industry because so many Americans are enslaved to hoarding. Or the person who's enslaved to bitterness. They just can't forgive 
that person who sinned against them so grievously 30 years ago. And the more they're enslaved, often the more they deny it. John Calvin wrote these words, the greater the mass of vices anyone is buried under, the more fiercely and bombastically does he extol his freedom. These folks are deceived. When you bring up slavery, they deny it. It's like the alcoholic who is convinced that he can stop drinking when he wants to stop drinking. And everyone knows that he or she can't. Well, how do we get enslaved? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In verse 34, Jesus says, truly, truly, in other words, what I'm saying is really, really important and really, really true. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And that verb practice is in the present tense, which means a continuous action. This person keeps on sinning, making them even more and more and more of a slave of sin. And we all know how this works, don't we? We resist temptation for a while, then we eventually give in, and we sin more and more and more, and then eventually our conscience becomes more and more and more seared, and eventually our conscience is shut off, and we can no longer stop sinning. Conscience is gone and we're just totally suffocating under the slavery of sin. Which raises the question, what sin are you currently tempted towards? What sin are you currently toying with? Be careful. Be very careful. Even Christians get enslaved sometimes even though they don't have to. Which brings us to the third point. First is receiving freedom. Second is rejecting freedom. And third is rejoicing in freedom. This point is the good news. Why can Christians rejoice? Because we are all freed from the power of sin. Look with me at verses 34 to 36. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son, that is if Christ, sets you free, you will be free indeed. According to verse 36, Christians, we have been set free, but set free from what? We are set free from many things through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You and I are freed from the guilt of sin, which I talked about last week. Furthermore, you and I are freed from the power of the devil. Furthermore, you and I are freed from slavery to Satan. We are also freed from the fear of death. But Christ has a very specific freedom in mind in verses 33 to 36. Remember the context here. He's talking specifically about slavery to sin. And he's saying that we have been freed from a very specific type of slavery. Slavery specifically from the power of sin. 
Now, the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 specifically lays out how it is that you and I as Christians are freed from the power of sin. Romans 6, 1 to 6. The Apostle Paul writes, what shall we say then? Now, he says that because in the previous three chapters, he's extolling the wonders and glories of God's grace. And the obvious question is, well, if God is gracious, why not keep sinning? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Summary, through our glorious mystical and spiritual union with Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, our old self died with him. Our old self, that part of us that was dominated by sin before conversion, the old self was crucified and murdered with Christ. Therefore, he no longer lives. And because the old self is dead, was murdered with Jesus, you and I are no longer under the power of sin. That part of us is gone, murdered, buried with Christ, never to come back and torment us again. As a result of that, the Apostle Paul can write in 6.2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Rhetorical question. 6 6, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 6 11 to 12, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 6 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. 6 18, Christians have been set free from sin. Romans 6 tells us loud and clear that you and I are no longer enslaved to sin because the old self was murdered with Jesus, which means, Christian, you don't have to be mastered by anything but King Jesus. That's good news. I heard one amen. Someone's listening. This is not something that we accomplish in ourselves through more yielding, more obedience, more willpower, solo bootstrapsa, pulling up our boots and just, I'm going to die to sin. No, this was accomplished for us by someone else, Jesus and apply to us the moment that we believe the gospel. Well, what does this freedom from the power of sin mean? I love how Wayne Grudem describes this. 
In practical terms, this means that we must affirm two things to be true. On the one hand, we will never be able to say, I am completely free from sin because our sanctification will never be completed. But on the other hand, a Christian should never say, for example, this sin has defeated me. I give up. I've had a bad temper for 37 years, and I will have one until the day I die, and people are just going to have to put up with me the way I am. A Christian should never utter those words. If you do, you're denying the work of Christ on the cross. To say this is to say that sin has gained dominion. It is to allow sin to reign in our bodies, is to admit defeat, is to deny the truth of Scripture, which tells us you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It is to deny the truth of Scripture that tells us that sin will have no dominion over you. Again, I'm not talking about some version of sinless perfection. You and I will bow to the day we die, but we will never be mastered by sin if we're Christians because of what Christ accomplished in his death. Theologians call this a definitive sanctification separate from progressive sanctification. And that describes that initial breach with sin that we experience when Christ died for us. Another author says it this way, Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sins, amen that he does that. He does more. He breaks its power. Or as we sing with the old hymn, Rock of Ages, be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. So often we Christians think, yeah, I'm thankful that God removes all the guilt for all my sins, but I'm just stuck trying to fight sin on my own, and I'm, I'm never going to have any success. Christ's death accomplished two things. He destroys the guilt of sin, and he destroys the power of sin. Back to the quote. Jesus cleanses us from both the penalty and the power of sins. He is the double cure. Now, sometimes, if we're honest, we don't feel like the power of sin's been broken in us, do we? Or maybe it's just me who feels that way sometimes. Is it just me? Okay. We often feel like we have no choice but to sin when the temptation comes. But in those moments, we must recognize that our feelings don't matter. The objective truth is, Christ has destroyed the power of sin in you, or the Apostle Paul is lying in Romans 6. So it helps to remember in those moments of temptation, when you're tempted to be angry or greedy or if you're tempted towards lust or pride, in that moment, remember, Jesus Christ has destroyed the power of sin in me. I am no longer a slave to the sin. Jesus, please help. And he will help. 
He wants to help. He's broken the power of sin in you, and he's filled you with the Holy Spirit. So if you are currently feeling enslaved to sin, you are not relying on or recognizing the incredibly rich reserve of resources that Christ has given you. He's broken the power of sin in you, filled you with his Holy Spirit, placed you in a community of faith. He has given you everything you need to be successful in godliness. Now, sometimes counseling is helpful if you're really stuck in sin, but even then, you're going to have success, not because of the counselor primarily, but because Jesus has broken the power of sin in you. And that counselor can help apply the gospel to your life. We must remind ourselves of the objective truths of the gospel. The power of sin has been broken. If you feel enslaved, it's because you are not relying on Christ's resources or remembering the gospel specifically enough. Well, we looked at three aspects of freedom. Receiving freedom, rejecting freedom, and rejoicing in freedom. Well, Louis Zamperini was eventually delivered from the Japanese prisoner of war camp. But then, and only then, did his life significantly begin to spiral out of control. He got home, and because of all the trauma in his life from being in a prisoner of war camp for two years, he had suicidal thoughts, he was depressed, he was anxious, he was bitter, his marriage was broken, he drank too much, and to make things worse, he had horrible nightmares about the bird over and over and over again. He was consumed with thoughts of revenge. All he wanted to do was go back to Japan, find the bird, make him suffer, and then kill him. He was in deep, deep trouble. His slavery to sin was just as bad, if not worse, than his slavery to his Japanese prison guards. Fortunately, at this time in his life, his young wife became a Christian, and Louis mocked her for several months, but then eventually she dragged him to a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles in the 1950s. He heard the gospel, and he was radically changed. God forgave all of his sins, and God liberated Louis from his bitterness. His nightmares were gone, and he was liberated from drunkenness. God forgave his sins and God delivered him from the power of sin. He eventually went back to Japan, but not to seek revenge. He went back to Japan to preach the gospel to his captors. He was a changed man. He was liberated by the greatest liberator in the history of the world, Jesus Christ. Jesus frees us from guilt and he frees us from the power of sin. Let's pray together.